This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. I'm Erin Acevedo, writer and budding entrepreneur. And I'm Eric Barrage, co-founder of Blue Wolf and author of Customer Obsessed. In each episode, we explore the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, how to engage with customers, and what it takes to build a successful customer-obsessed business. Along the way, we'll interview other customer-obsessed business leaders to get their take on how to connect with customers. And we're not going to play it safe. We'll share heroic and inspiring customer stories along with truly ridiculous, cringeworthy ones, my favorite, as you join us on the road to customer obsession. And I'll be taking full advantage of having my longtime mentor in the recording booth and will be peppering Eric with the burning questions that I and every other entrepreneur and leader need answered. Ready to get customer obsessed? Hey, everyone, and welcome to part two of our interview with Bob Furness. This time, we are going to focus on the people side of contact centers and customer service, as well as executive alignment and how that trickles down through the organization to affect the overall service culture. Eric, how you doing? I'm great, Aaron. I'm happy to uh, publish our second podcast with Bob Furness. The first one we dropped last week, and it uh, has gotten a lot of amazing feedback. And thank you so much, everyone, for your kind words on our discussion with Bob. You get a little more today. But before we get there, Aaron, you left us with a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the last episode, where you were going to tell us a story about a prank that I pulled that I don't actually remember. So I've been waiting for this moment to hear about this story. So why don't you why don't you start today by telling our guests about this this prank that we pulled on you? Okay. Well, I didn't realize that I was also leaving you on a, a cliffhanger, Eric. So here we go. There's actually a bit of buildup to this story. And it started after I'd been at Blue Wolf maybe three or four weeks. I was just getting my feet wet as your executive assistant and everything was really new to me. Didn't know many of the personalities that I'd be working with. And one oh, day there were there were me, a few personalities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Some pretty unforgettable ones. Yeah. Uh, and th- so this particular story is about one consultant, and you asked me to get him on the phone. And so I just used GChat to see if he was around and said that you wanted to talk to him. He said, yes, I'm available. But first, can you ask Eric one question? And I said, well, sure. What is it? And he replied, can you ask him if I'm getting fired? And Eric, I couldn't tell if he was joking. There were no emojis. There was no punctuation other than the question mark. So I was very uncomfortable. And I replied, do you really want me to ask him that? And I got one word back. Yes. And so I got up and I went to the office and I said, hey, you know, he's ready to hop on the phone, but he wants to ask if he's getting fired. And you sidled and he said, no, he's not getting fired. Just get him on the phone. So I said, okay. The phone call went on and I thought that was the end of it. Well, fast forward two or three weeks later and he's visiting you in New York. And for anyone who needs a visual, the office at Blue Wolf had all glass walls to partition the different offices and areas. And so Eric's in a meeting, he calls me in and you say, hey everyone, this is Erin. She's my new assistant, just introducing me. You say, oh, hey, and yeah, meet this consultant. You guys interacted a couple of weeks back and you know, he just got fired. Can you please escort him out of the building? (laughs) 
And I mean, you could have knocked me over with a feather, Eric. I was shocked that you actually asked me to escort this person who I thought you fired out of the building. But I looked at you. I said, okay, nodded, looked over at the consultant. He played his part very well. He drooped his head. He walked out of the office with me. And again, all glass walls. So as soon as we were out of the office, on the other side of that glass, everyone burst out laughing. And I mean, and it was hilarious, don't get me wrong, but I was so embarrassed. I, my cheeks were as red as a tomato. <laughs> well, you know, like we were saying last week, humor has a very important part in the workplace. And I do remember that story now. And I think the other setup to that story was this individual was one of the strongest leaders in our company. And he was an incredible consultant and he could sell and we all worked together for a long time. So the thought that he was actually being let go was like the furthest thing from everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. You just happened to be the new kid on the block. And in the early days, Aaron, you were kind of like a cat with a, a ball of string. So that probably wasn't the only prank that we pulled on you. No, definitely not. <laughs> you know, you got to have a you got to have a good time in the workplace. And it's a fine line. You, you got to make sure you're not offending people and you're, you're not taking things too far but I think that you need levity in the workplace. You need, I think, businesses that take themselves too seriously and where every call and every meeting is tense and, and doesn't have a certain humane, hey, we're just all in this together. And it's rarely a life and death situation that we're dealing with. I think when you inject that sort of thinking into a business conversation, you actually come up with better answers and you make people more comfortable and they want to be there. It keeps people on their toes a little bit in a good way. So you were certainly on your toes that day. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, and for quite a while <laughs> after, I feel like. But, but I agree with you that, I mean, the humor and the joy that I found in working at Blue Wolf really helped build some pretty incredible relationships. But on the flip side of that, too, it also taught me what my own boundaries were, which I think mm -hmm. is also another really important thing to be dialed into, because I also remember that after the consultant asked me to ask you that question, and you had had your phone call, I got back to him and I told him that question actually made me very uncomfortable. In the future, if you have something like that to address with Eric, would you please speak to him directly? So I set what my boundaries were and that made me feel much more comfortable and much stronger in my role and helped again set the tone for what my relationship was going to be with that consultant and you know everyone else in the office going forward. So it was really helpful. But I do want to move on so that we can dive into the meat of our, our podcast today. And last week, we left off talking about the marriage that you need to have between technology and finding really great people. And I want to start this discussion off by telling a story about a truly terrible customer service experience that I had last year that involved both uh, technical and people failures. And as strange as this sounds, it all revolves around an artificial Christmas tree. Uh, I, <laughs> Aaron, you do I had, not strike me as the person that gets a plastic Christmas tree. Oh, okay. See, here's Come the on. thing, Eric. I, I never do. For years and years in New York, it was my favorite thing to go out and get a real live Christmas tree from one of the many stands in the city. And I would haul it myself back to my apartment. To the admiring glances of many other people in my neighborhood, by the way. Anyway, so that, that was Aaron, my thing. Did you do for, that because you really loved it or because you thought it was romantic? 
the whole romantic. Oh, the whole, I love okay, it. Okay, okay, no, okay. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Love right, it, love it, right. love it. It's one of my, it's my favorite Christmas tradition is decorating my tree. I would throw a little party, invite friends over, the whole thing. Okay. But this past Christmas, we had just, my husband and I had just gotten a puppy. And I just figured I didn't want our puppy Gypsy licking the water out of the bowl and potentially knocking things over. And so I just wanted something that I felt was going to be a little more durable, maybe a little easier. So for the first time in my life, I decided that I was going to get an artificial tree. And boy, was it a mistake. So there was this Christmas in July sale, because I'm a planner. I think of things whoa, whoa, way whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. Um, <laughs> time out. I don't want to gloss over this. So it was enough for me that you were buying an artificial Christmas tree. Now you're going to tell me you bought it in July. <laughs> Bob, what's going on here? Well, it's the reason why it's the reason why you have it's the reason why you have Aaron helping you with your podcast is because she's that kind of planner, right? She's worried about the dog drinking the water in the Christmas tree in July. I'm I keep going. I'm going to sit back and listen to this one. Okay. So, I get on this website. It's this national company Balsam Hill and I find this gorgeous 7-foot tall pre-lit candlelight LED Christmas tree. And I decide that I am going to splurge on what is my favorite part of Christmas and I buy the tree. And it gets shipped to me and I open it and I look at the instructions and I say, oh, okay. So the instructions say it's the right tree. We're all good. I wasn't going to bother setting it up because it was July. Why would I do any of that? So I leave it in there and December 1st comes around. And I am so excited. And I take the tree out of the box and it's the wrong tree. They sent me the correct instructions for the tree that I ordered. Wrong tree. And so at this point, I'm very disappointed, not going to be able to get my tree up. But I call customer service thinking they should be able to help me pretty easily. It's obvious that they sent the wrong tree. Well... I get on the phone and I get some information. They say, oh, well, do you still have, because I tell them this whole thing. And then she asks, do you still have the box with the number on it? And I told her, well, no, I got the tree in July and it came with this nice little bag. So I just took the tree in the bag and I got rid of the box. So no, I don't have this number, but I can send you pictures of the tree to prove that it's the wrong one and all this stuff. And apparently I only had 30 days to make an exchange or return it or anything else. So apparently this was now my fault. And she tried her best to help me. I thought that the problem had been solved, that they were in fact going to send a new tree out to me. Three or four days passed because she said it was supposed to be express shipping. So I call them again and it turns out that this number on the box is a real problem for them. They had to have this number in order to process this return. So now I've been bumped up to a supervisor at the call center and I've talked through this problem and I have to tell the exact same story all over again. So I have to live this experience again, start to finish. And he says, okay, I can help you just send these pictures to this email address. So I do so. And again, a couple more days goes by, nothing happens. So I contact them again. Turns out they didn't receive the pictures. So there's nobody being proactive on my behalf to help me actually solve this issue. So this back and forth, goes on for every couple of days for about two to three weeks as I'm trying to solve this problem. It's getting closer and closer to Christmas. So at this point, I get on the phone one more time and I finally talk to someone who says that they can actually help me. 
we go through this whole process again. I keep having to tell this story over and over and over again from the very beginning because nobody can apparently remember or take enough notes about my situation. And they finally say, okay, we can get a tree out to you, but it can't be express shipping. So at this point, I don't even know if I'm going to get the tree before Christmas. And then I call the call service one more time just to make sure, because at one point someone had given me to just get me off their back, had given me the old tracking number for the shipment back in July, thinking that would do something, I guess. Uh, So I call one more time and I go through this just one more time. And at that point, I'm very emotional. I'm almost in in tears, but I'm still trying to be very, very calm. But you can hear it in my voice. And so the person I'm talking to at that moment hangs up on me. (laughs) And I have to call again and talk to a person one more time and they're able to confirm everything. So the tree comes, I think it's three or four days before Christmas. So, you know, at least I'm able to put it up. But I kid you not, I put that tree together and I plug in the lights and the top half of the tree doesn't work. Oh my Lord. Oh my God. It was honestly (laughs) the worst experience ever. So I took myself to Rite Aid, got some additional lights and I jerry-rigged it to make the rest of it work. But now I have this horrible memory associated with this artificial Christmas tree that ruined what is my favorite Christmas tradition. So now, honestly, if anybody wants this artificial tree, please get in touch with me and I will just give it to you because I will never use it again. It has so many bad memories associated with it. What's the name of this? Balsam. It's called Balsam Hill. What do you think happened, Bob, after hearing that horror story? What's going on inside of that company? There's a couple of different directions you can go with this. You can talk about the service aspects of it, which we should, and we will. But you could also, if you break down, if you go back and look at the customer journey and where the journey started. So the journey started when she saw an ad for a special deal in July, right? Yep. So when you bought that tree, if I had planned the customer experience effectively, two things might have happened. Number one is I would have put on the outside of the box or on the top and the inside of the box, please take your tree out of the box to verify that it works, knowing that you're buying a Christmas tree in July. So again, if I'm thinking about the customer experience, there should have been some validation that you're going to verify because that company knows they have a 30-day return policy. So the thing that I want you to do as a customer is to verify that everything's good. The other thing I could have done is be proactive because how many Christmas trees are you selling in July anyway, except for crazy people like Aaron? One, one. (laughs) It was just the one in July too. It's not like they were overloaded with orders It's not like they, they were overloaded with orders. They could have called you and verified and reminded you, hey, you might want to plug the tree in. One out of every thousand trees have a problem. So I think, The customer journey started when you got the email. Where it became worse is when you called in and they began to make you feel like it was your problem because they put you through all of that verification and process. So you left that contact center the first time more unhappy than you were when you called them to begin with because all you were saying was, hey, my tree's not the right tree, assuming everything's going to be fine. But they made it worse at that point. And then there's just a series of things that CRMs like Salesforce that can help. The fact that you had to repeat yourself over and over again, that's the catalyst of what is the ticket to play in customer service, which is case management. The ability to understand who Aaron is, to know who Aaron is because you've bought a product from us. 
you've given us all your data. I know where you live. I know who you are. I know what your credit card number is. All of this data that I have about you can then be transferred into a contact which says, this is who Aaron is. And then when you called and had a problem, someone should have captured that information in a case so that then the next time you call, all the person has to say is, hang on a sec, Aaron, and I'll, I'll catch up to you and we'll see how we can help you. So yeah. there were just breakdowns along the way that are both technology-based, but they're also culture-based in their world. What they're there to do is to sell Christmas trees. When in reality, what they are there to do is to make Aaron's holiday tradition better. That's what they're there for. Right. They are literally in the business of selling Christmas joy. And instead of that, I got so much disappointment and heartache around what should have been a really happy time. And speaking of culture, I kept getting the other line that these processes and rules were handed down from corporate. There was very little they could do because their response had already been prescribed by the people at the very top. So this level of inflexibility, that was their excuse every time, was that they couldn't do these things for me to help fix my problem. When do you start buying the mistletoe? I mean, that's perishable. Like, you can't do that in July, can you? Like, is that like a... Uh, no, no, I, I don't buy the uh, the mistletoe early, Eric. I wait until a, a week or two before Christmas. One thing that your story, though, kind of reminds me of is... You know, I think a big issue that businesses have, particularly as they get bigger, is they operate in these silos and the silos don't talk to each other. And as the communication between departments and silos breaks down, you actually develop these cultures or these microcultures where people don't understand the full scope of the business. And what we always try to recommend to customers is that when they deploy a call center solution, get your entire business involved. Make sure your head of marketing, who is the brilliant person that came up with the campaign to sell Christmas trees in July, and it worked. I mean, can you imagine sitting in that meeting like, hey, we're going to do a campaign to sell some Christmas trees this month, and we're going to give 20% off. I mean, I would have sat there as a CEO going, you're crazy. Well, whoever made that decision was right. Aaron bought the tree. Do you know how absolutely pissed off that person would be if they overheard the conversation that was happening between Aaron and the call center agent? So getting your marketing folks involved, getting your sales folks involved, getting your executives involved and getting them to weigh in and look at how you're treating customers out of your contact center, which in my opinion is like air traffic control of a business, right? If you think about all the planes flying around the country, that air traffic control center is everything. Where is every plane? When is it landing? When is it taking off? Where do I have safety issues? Where do we have weather issues? I think of a call center as being air traffic control. It's an incredibly important part of the business. It is such an access point for your customers. And if the answer is, well, this is how I'm supposed to do my job. I don't care about your experience. You've lost your brand and all the money and effort you've put into building your business and building that brand and creating this incredible artificial tree that's going to make everyone's Christmas. That's all out the window. So breaking those silos down is a matter of getting the right people involved in your organization. And I'd be curious about your thoughts on that, Bob. Yeah, Eric, you know, if we go back to when you took a chance on me and brought me into Blue Wolf, what, eight, nine years ago, and we think about the discussions that I had with companies back then about customer service, almost every company that we did business with started with their sales organization on Salesforce. 
I see that as flipping a little bit today. If companies don't have CRM or they don't have Salesforce, and for the first time they're putting it in, they're actually putting it into their customer service first, with sales being the second wave or the second phase, because organizations are understanding that I'm losing customers out the back door faster than I can bring them in the front door. And so customer service has become more important in organizations because the CEO understands the long-term value of the customer. And so organizations are looking at technology through the lens of how do I affect my customer? And you mentioned the CEO and the executives and the sales teams and the marketing team. And I, I know you didn't leave them off on purpose, but the people that you talked about that are closest to your customer is the agent. And so those right. agents sitting in that contact center that were quoting off the policies to Aaron saying, here's the policy and we don't have a way to change it, are the ones who understand that you're affecting the value of that customer over and over again. So one of the places you also need to look when you're thinking about your organization is to talk to those agents. They know more about your customers than anyone in the organization. I've been in mm -hmm. multiple CRM implementations where on day one and you show up and you're doing the discovery piece, in walks a group of supervisors, in walks a group of managers, in walks a group of directors. And the question is, well, where are the people that answer the calls? Oh, well, you don't talk to them until Thursday. Well, I want to talk to them earlier than Thursday because they talk to customers. You guys talk to them. So it's very important as an organization that you listen to your frontline agents. And I'm a little amused as a consultant that the amount of money that companies pay us to come in and talk to their agents so that we can help tell them what their agents said so that we can build the right applications when they're not talking to their agents themselves. That's huge. You were one of those people as a CEO, Eric. In fact, uh, one of the stories I was going to tell on you is I, I can remember the first time that you stepped into a chatter on an opportunity I was involved with and asked this poignant question about how were we helping this customer? I knew that as a CEO, you were involved not only in the decisions of the company, but you were involved in the decisions and the way the company was being managed by the people on the front lines. That's important for any company. If you're a CEO of a small company or you're a director of a large company, that you're spending some time every day. We used to call it walking around time in the contact center. And when I was a contact mm -hmm. center leader, I had 30 to 45 minutes a day that was on my calendar that was time for me to just step out of my office and walk on the floor and talk to people. Because you hear things about your latest product. Your employees tell you things about your customers. It's invaluable. It's the best 45 minutes you can spend in a day is to spend some time in your contact center listening and talking to your employees. Yeah. And I think a good contact center sets itself up so even the agents themselves can interact with each other at the appropriate level because the technology is not going to answer every question. You can have the greatest knowledge base in the world. As we said earlier, as more and more gets automated, the call center's agent is to solve the tough problems. And sometimes it's the problems only happened once or twice before. I have to imagine that the interaction that can happen between agents, and if you can facilitate that, even at a personal level, it's going to make your customer service all the better, and it's going to allow you to be customer obsessed. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a funny story on that regard, and I have a visual in my head. 
and it's not as entertaining as Aaron's Christmas tree story, I was in a much simpler conundrum. I couldn't get money out of the ATM. And I was traveling on a trip down to Georgia. I was actually flying to Savannah, Georgia. I happened to be going on a trip where I needed cash. And you know we don't carry cash with us like we used to. So I flew by the local ATM in my town and my Citibank card wasn't working. I'm late for my flight. I know I have no cash and I know I'm going to need cash on this trip. So on my way to the airport, I called 1-800-CITIBANK. And their service has gotten so much better over the years. I mean, literally an agent picked up on one ring and I was immediately speaking to someone. I could tell this person was not in the United States. They were in some faraway place, but their English was just about impeccable. They understood my problem. And I said, hey, my ATM card's not working. Can you help me? He did some research and said, it looks like the chip's not working. And your only option is to go into a branch, which didn't give me as much of a visceral reaction as going into a DMV. I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. I can go into a Citibank branch and get my card fixed. But, but I was in a hurry. I knew I was going to get to JFK, get on a flight, land in Savannah. But I happened to know that I had my morning free the next day in Savannah. So I figured, all right, I'll go to a Citibank branch there. So I asked this nice gentleman, do you have a branch in Savannah, Georgia? And there was a pause. He said, no, sir, we don't have a branch in Savannah, Georgia. That didn't necessarily shock me, but I was a little surprised. Then I tested him a little bit and I said, okay, do you have branches in Georgia? Like I thought maybe this was like some state regulation where Citibank didn't have a banking license there, which seemed ridiculous to me. He said, no, sir, we don't have any branches in the state of Georgia. And I'm thinking, wow, okay. Where do you have branches? He said, we have branches in New York, Connecticut, and California. And I said, that's it. I said, are you sure? Like query on Georgia, G-E-O-R-G-I-A. <laughs> and I hear him typing away, no branches in Georgia. I'm like, oh, my, that's crazy. So now what do I do? Like I'm a you know, rabid consumer. I'm driving over the Throg's Neck Bridge. There's traffic. I've got one hand on my steering wheel and my other hand is on my iPhone Googling Citibank Savannah branches, right? About to get in an accident. Boom, up pops up like nine branches in Savannah with their hours, their location, pins on the map, the whole works. I've got the data right in front of me. Now I'm air traffic control. So I'm happy because I know I'm going to get a branch there tomorrow. But now I'm having fun with this guy. I'm like, so you're telling me there are no branches in Savannah? He goes, no, sir. I said, what if I told you there was a branch at 1322 Main Street? <laughs> and there's a branch at 6394 Madeline Street. He's like, no, sir. No, I could have been on the phone with this guy for an hour arguing with him about the availability of branches, not only in Georgia, but in Savannah. And he just was adamant about it. And back to my earlier point, I think in a good contact center, that guy's reaching over his cube and saying, hey, Mike, do we have any branches in Georgia? Because clearly he was like querying on the wrong thing and couldn't figure it out. And he heard in my voice that I kind of knew what was going on. But this person had not been trained to think on their feet. They hadn't been trained maybe culturally to understand the situation I was in and to figure out that they were actually wrong, which is okay, by the way. And I think as organizations scale into these global, multinational, remote areas where the cost of deploying labor is a lot cheaper, we know that. That's okay. That's a good thing. We should be able to leverage that. They still have to think about training these employees on that customer moment. And I did get my cash and had a great trip, and I'm still a Citibank customer, so... 
I am not a Balsam Hill customer, though. That That's not happening. <laughs> yeah, no. I'm sorry. No one should be a Balsam Hill customer. But as you see these huge call, as you see these huge call centers, Bob, like what is your advice to help them scale in a way where they can still have a personal relationship with these customers, which is what a phone call is? I think we started here earlier today talking about the hiring aspect. So the first thing I've got to do is hire the right person. So what kind of person do I want in my call center? Probably the guy that you talked to didn't fit the best customer service profile. Then I've got to train effectively. And in today's world, that means training differently than just putting somebody in a classroom for six weeks and expecting them to come out on the other side of that. I've got to train in small, digestible bites of information. But I also need systems that allow the agent to learn how to find the answer versus to know the answer. So knowledge comes into play and knowledge management. And we could stop and rant for a pretty long time about knowledge management. And you said he wasn't checking correctly, but knowledge should be able to find an answer like wherever our branches without a whole lot of problem. Yeah, that was, was surprising to me. I was like, wow, this is really rudimentary, right? Yeah, but he, he probably did not have a knowledge management system. He probably had some form of wiki or some form of antiquated system because you're, it's surprising to me how many companies still haven't bought into knowledge completely. But you can just keep going. He, he needed to be trained effectively. He needed, to, he needed a culture where helping customers is part of what we do. One of the best ways that I've ever seen to instill customer culture into your contact center is to tell stories in your huddles are in your management team meetings. Because if I tell Aaron's story and mm. I talk about Aaron as a person and, I, and I'm the balsamic company, the balsa company? Balsam Hill. Balsam Hill company. Balsam Hill. <laughs> so if I was a supervisor who took her last phone call, the best way for me to turn around and install culture into my company would have been to, at the next team meeting, is to tell Aaron's story but to talk about how for Aaron, buying a tree in July was a big deal because she had always bought a live tree because I'm sure Aaron told that story. So telling a story is a way to engage frontline employees that what they do matters, what they say matters. That's where the story matters. And that's one of the ways that you build culture in a contact center. And Probably that person that you were talking to, and let's assume it was an outsourced environment, he probably hasn't had any customer stories told to him lately. Mm. He's the guy who answers the phone from 11 o'clock at night until 7 o'clock in the morning because he's on the opposite mm -hmm. timeline to you are. Mm -hmm. And he's paid by the phone. He's probably incented by the number of interactions he has. He's probably told he's going to be quality monitored three times a, a day. He has all these metrics, but somebody forgot to tell him what he was really doing, which is helping customers. Yeah. Is there today, like when you look at how these chatbots and AI is being employed and, and how unstructured data theoretically is now at our fingertips and more valuable to us, are there techniques that like call center managers can use to like suss out conversations and, and find, you know, just from like tonal analysis, find customers that are upset or, you know, in a perfect world, if I run a group of agents, I'd want to say, all right, give me five phone calls that have happened this week that I should pay attention to just based on 
the tone of the call or the request of the call? Are those tools now available to managers so that they can suss those stories out and use them to make their organization stronger? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speech analytics has been around in the contact center way before we started talking about AI. We didn't call it AI. It was just speech analytics. 10, 12 years ago, that first time I heard a story about Royal Bank of Canada recording 150,000 calls a day or 150,000 calls a week and being able to find particular details and then pull those uh, calls out and listen to them. With AI, what we've been able to do is to be able to understand tone differently. So you can teach the bot or teach the AI to understand when you ask that question back to him in a certain cadence while you're mm -hmm. driving over the bridge, there's the capability to understand and say, let's find that type phone call and let's pull that out into this list and let's listen to it. Because, you know, the thing that stuck in my brain since that moment was I don't think this person had the advantage to learn from the experience. I think to this day, he can't learn from that experience. And we all learn from our failures, our mistakes. That's how we get better. And I think a great call center environment instills that in their culture on a daily basis. Yeah. And I've got a whole belief system around quality. It's about the coaching that occurs after the quality management, after you listen to the call. It's about the ability to coach the agent effectively and to not talk just from a, hey, this is wrong and you have to do better, but the whys. Why is it important that the customer get the answer? I've got a great story about that. I worked for Bell South Mobility, which eventually became AT&T. And the CEO of Bell South Mobility was coming to Memphis. And he comes to Memphis, he gets into the conference room, and he goes, hey, Bob, can I listen to some phone calls? So he knew we had a new quality management system, and he knew that he could listen to phone calls. And I said, yes, sir. So I dialed into who I thought was a really good agent. So John gets on the call with a customer, and Eric, it was butter. It was such a great call. He said all the right things. He said them in the right order. He was nice. He was empathetic. He was wonderful. He hangs up the phone call. And the guy's name at the time, the president was Odie Donnell. I remember his name. He said, Bob, that was one of the best calls I've ever heard on my trips. Now, I got a question for you. I knew that everything that that guy had told the customer was wrong. <laughs> All of the information he gave him was like three weeks old. <laughs> what do you do? Do you come clean with the CEO or do you just let him think he's got the best answer there ever was? <laughs> I think you want the CEO to feel good and then you go fix the problem. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. <laughs> So this gets back to an important point, I think, that we've touched on a little bit, which is around knowledge. And so for anyone who's not really familiar with how to set up a contact center, either if you're smaller or even if you're a larger company who hasn't paid a whole lot of attention to the service culture but wants to improve that, can we talk a little bit about the role of knowledge combined with that strong service culture that is going to help take that response and that customer obsession, that customer experience up to that next level? There's sort of two answers to that. First of all is how serious are you about knowledge management? One of the best contact centers that I ever visited around contact center was probably 10 years ago, long before there was AI, was a contact center I visited where they had a whole knowledge team and their team was dedicated to ensuring that the right information was in front of the agent. This was long before AI assisted. 
So one of the questions I used to ask folks, still do for that matter, when I'm talking with a new customer who's bringing in Salesforce, they're bringing in Service Cloud, and they go, so we want you to implement knowledge for us. One of the best questions I have is, so how many people do you have in your knowledge organization? If they've told me that they want the best of the best of the best knowledge, and they tell me they don't have anybody in their knowledge organization, that's like a red flag to say, Mm. your knowledge is not going to be effective because if we set it up for you and you don't continue to curate it, it just becomes stale information. So the first thing is, do you have a strategy and a structure around your knowledge management? Do you have a strategy of how you're going to decide what's on the website versus what's in front of the agent? Because that may be two different things. Do you have the information that decides that this type of knowledge can be sent via our social channels and this other knowledge can only be told over the phone? Why? Because I'm sending it to 100,000 people versus one person. So there's just a whole list. We could spend an entire podcast about the strategy and structure of knowledge. But the second piece is the technology. And the technology needs to be able to allow you to let your agents or your frontline be able to give you feedback on whether the knowledge is correct or whether the knowledge is effective. So that piece is really important also. An agent, just like the agent that you were talking about, Eric, the one that said you had no branches in the state of Georgia, that agent, (laughs) at the end of that phone call, they knew that they were not right. But how could he let anybody know that that wasn't the right answer? With the right knowledge system, he could tag that knowledge and send a note to say, there seems to be a problem with this knowledge. Do we have this? So it's about the strategy and the structure. And then it's about the technology that allows you to write, approve, publish, and curate knowledge. You've got to have all those different pieces. I can speak from experience. Like we had a knowledge management group at Blue Wolf that we have invested in over time. And at the peak of that group's effectiveness, it was not a cost center inside of our business. It was an asset. It drove customer engagement. We won deals because we had good knowledge management. We kept projects out of the red because we had good knowledge management. But to your point, Bob, it's an investment. And I think CEOs can't look at it like a cost center. They've got to look at it like a weapon inside of their business that's helping to drive competitiveness. Yeah, definitely. So one last thing before we all uh, head off. This is our Customer Obsessed Picks segment where we all share something we've read, watched, or listened to recently that we recommend for anyone who wants to become more customer obsessed. So Bob, you're our guest. I'd love to start with you. So mine is an article from CBS this morning, and it's a quote by General McChrystal about the type of leadership that we need in our nation today. And it was so relevant to every leadership situation I've ever seen. And here's his quote. I think first you have to care. You can pretend you care about the organization, the mission, and the people. But if it's not true, over time it'll come out. And there'll be a difference between what you say and what you do. He said, I had somebody at one of my teachings that gave me this quote. She said, People will forgive you for not being the leader you should be, but they won't forgive you for not being the leader you claim to be. And I thought that was one of the most poignant leadership quotes I've seen in a long time. I love that. I was just asked this the other day, like, how do you manage in a time of crisis? And, you know, my answer was you need to over communicate and you need to be authentic and you don't need to have all the answers. And I think the leaders right now that are 
following those edicts or rules are, are probably doing pretty well. I think the ones that are under communicating and are trying to have all the answers and feeling insecure that they don't are, are the ones that are struggling. That authenticity thing is so important right now. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And that gets down to caring about your organization, right? Do you want me to go next, Aaron? Uh, yes. Would love I never too. go second because I'm never ready. So I'm, I'm ready today. So I've got a book <laughs> that um, we were pretty familiar with it in Blue Wolf. And actually, it's written by an individual named Stan Slap. Name of the book is Bury My Heart at Conference Room B, The Unbeatable Impact of Truly Committed Managers. And this is all about creating great culture. And it's all about allowing your culture to have its point of view and listening to your culture and then responding as leaders to what the culture is saying instead of trying to ignore that culture and ignore that the water cooler exists. Like one of the great stories Stan talks about is the water cooler is there. It's not going away. As leaders, you've got to figure out how to be empathetic to that water cooler and then figure out how to build your vision and your strategy and plan in a way that that water cooler conversation is a positive one. So again, stand slap, bury my heart at conference room B. On to you, Aaron. Awesome. So mine is just kind of going back to what you touched on last week, Eric, around visual communication. Your pick was back of the napkin. So this is kind of adding on to it because I teased you about while it teaches visual communication, it didn't teach you actually how to draw. And so this is something I've actually been working on myself because I do think an ability to draw at least competently is an important part of being effective at visual communication. And so one of the things that I'm working through right now is called Drawing Textbook by Bruce McIntyre. And it is this step-by-step guide to the fundamentals of drawing and, and how to improve And I'll even share some of my uh, progress because this is currently happening right now in the show notes. I'll share a picture of kind of where I started and and where I am right now. And this is coming from a woman who had trouble drawing stick figures. So (laughs) if I can do it, anybody, anybody really can. And I just think it's this incredible tool to help build a very necessary skill. Awesome. Yeah. And so with that, Bob, we just want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And again, everyone, we will list everything we talked about in the show notes. If you want these resources, definitely check us out at customerobsessed.net. And Bob and Eric, thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Bob. Great to talk again. Good luck. Go out and crush it. And uh, we'll, we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Okay. Good deal. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Customer Obsessed. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a Customer Obsessed moment.